Hello, and welcome to episode 352 of the Creighton Crowbar, uh, being recorded on the 13th of December 2020. That's right, the dark future of 2020. Uh, my name is Chris Thurston, and joining me this Sunday afternoon are Marsh Davies. Hello. And Tom Senior. Good afternoon, or evening. Indeed. Uh, we are taking the unusual step to record this much later in the week than we normally do, and uh, in the middle of the afternoon, uh, essentially to have allowed us to to play some of a, a game that came out uh, this week, that uh, in order for us to be able to render the, the medium takes that you're expecting. But also, uh, as it happens, given us a little bit of distance from, oh boy, just a big night of trailers. I think there's a very funny alternate universe where we recorded the podcast on Wednesday and then had a podcast on Friday <laughs> that included literally nothing of the 15 million <laughs> announcements that took place the night before spread across the Game Awards and Disney's shareholder, you know, uh, <laughs> Megacorp Circus event, whatever it Whatever it was they were doing. Um, but nonetheless, we are in a position to actually talk about the actual news. Would you like to do so? Moderately. Mm, that's the level of commitment to this <laughs> that I would like to see. And that's that's the level of enthusiasm you can expect when the news is being emitted from the heart of Jeff Keeley's laser cage. <laughs> um, so we were not going to go through all of it, obviously. Um, just picked out a few things that we might have thoughts about. Uh, I was um, pleased, sort of interested, kind of... Maybe excited, just curious to see quite a big Bioware presence at the at the Game Awards, particularly given um, the recent departures of some of their you know pretty long-standing uh, senior creative leadership. Um, so there was a trailer for the new Dragon Age, which they talked about a little bit more. Uh, it showed some stuff. You saw some Wizard Town. You saw some bald man that everyone's angry with. You know, Dragon Age things. Um, I don't know if even I, I, who love that series, have really strong feelings about it, other than I'm kind of glad that they're till, still telling the story that they've been telling for like 15 years now, it feels like. Um, but they also showed off a you know brief teaser trailer for a new Mass Effect game that is presumably very, very deep in development. The teaser shows a kind of hooded figure climbing up a the icy, snowed-over corpse of a Reaper, uh, climbing it, digging out a piece of N7 armor, uh, and turning and smiling roughly towards the camera. And it's it's Liara, the blue lady from, from the first games. What does it all mean? We don't know. But what does it mean to you, Tom? Uh, I think the, the problem I had with Andromeda wasn't the fact that it introduced new characters. I, I was hmm. completely happy to get to know new characters. Uh, and I understand the instinct to go back to that old universe and, you know, that everyone's familiar with. Um but I think it, I, I don't know, I'm excited, I'm interested. Um, but at the same time, like, they still could be brave with, with that series, perhaps. But that's a, a very big thing to say based on a very tiny like, teaser trailer. I don't want to launch into, like, a big take here, but, like, I wonder if... Okay, oh, here we go. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I think a general kind of... There was a general sense in the air, particularly when it comes to, like, big, you know, franchise pop culture, that... People want sequels and new things, and but they don't want the exact same thing again. They want a reboot or an origin story or a reimagining um, or something that challenges the original thing. And I think you get some good stuff and some mixed stuff out of that process. You got Andromeda, which felt the need to respect the ending of the original trilogy enough to move somewhere completely different. You get things like, I don't know, I'd also pull like I don't, The Last Jedi and, you know, 
Rogue mm. One in, in Star Wars into that. Like Rogue One being an interesting example because it's like, we're going to do this. We're going to do something that is reminiscent of a part of Star Wars people are nostalgic for, like the Rogue Squadron novels, that kind of thing. But we're not going to make it literally that. That's too far. We don't want to just, we're not just going to do fan service. We're going to, we're going to kind of bring some of the names back, but they'll have a new context. We're going to bring some of the ideas back, but they'll be presented very differently. And then a couple of years has passed. And it feels like while that approach has yielded some successes, I would point to things like Joker, for example, regardless of how you feel about it as a movie, it's like a reimagining that people kind of flocked to. You now have, I think, and this was especially evident that night, I think on Thursday night, like, no, no, we're just going to do the thing again. We're just going to do the old thing again, actually. Um, You know, Bass Effect is not going to... We know you just want to see the old characters again. You want another adventure with Garrus, probably. So, yeah, here he is, probably. Um, similarly, you know, I use Star Wars as a reference because it's the one I kind of encounter the most. But, like, you know, as that as all of that sort of property starts, um, you know, becoming more and more uh, in love with bringing things back from the 90s, especially, it was funny to me to see the cool announcement that Patty Jenkins, an interesting director is making a rogue squadron movie and how does that relate it feels like a, from a different kind of creative set of principles as to the one that determined that you can have that stuff but it has to come back through a filter in the form of rogue one and so yeah i think there's and i think this is maybe going to be pertinent to the big game that is looming over over this pod this idea of like um almost sort of just giving in and giving the people what they want in terms of nostalgia uh, and I, I hope I kind of hope that I'm wrong in that case about Mass Effect, but I didn't think there was anything in that trailer that communicated anything other than, "Hey, remember this? We're going back to the thing that you." Well, here's the funny thing: it's like it feels like saying we're going back to the thing that we made when you weren't angry with us, but it's worth remembering that they were inc- the gamers were incredibly angry at Bioware they um, uh, previously. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Liara may as well let, let down into the snow and dug up a little letter that said, we're very sorry about Andromeda. <laughs> <laughs> Would you prefer this? <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that's a really int- interesting point about nostalgia. I think, like, often entertainment reflects the current moment mm. uh, in the sense that it, like, entertainment at the moment is seeking to comfort people in this time of, uh, you know, deep unease and that actually maybe a lot of the kind of creative direction is going back in terms of like going back to like comforting comfort food, like, you know, Liara and the old characters that you, you know, Mass Effect. Um, and also thinking about the Mandalorian, which we've been watching recently, which is uh, a great show, but is also just kind of leaning into fan service more and more as it goes mm-hmm. along. And, uh, I think that's, and I, I've really enjoyed that stuff, but I think like there's, you don't see a huge amount of risk taking in entertainment at the moment. Because I think everyone just needs, needs just wants to watch something calm and nice that they understand. <laughs> Maybe I'm yeah, and I, I don't think you are. I think I think there's a combination of like there is a there's a risk averse in this in terms of I think um, wanting to play to those very vocal fans. I suspect I do wonder if to some extent I think this is a very relevant subject at the moment. We're kind of seeing the after effects of exhausted creators responding to the degree of personal backlash they can receive online in some cases mm, right. um um which is yeah a relevant subject this week i think the other side of it is that the the side that sort of redeems this and i wonder if this is like uh, holds overall is like 
I I'm sort of cautiously happy with the way some th- some of these things are being handled, simply because, in a, in a, particularly in the cases of like Mandalorian, for example, interesting creators are being given the reins on that stuff, and a lot of the craft of like traditional filmmaking is evident in the way that that stuff is executed. Yeah. Um, and that is ultimately like the bar for me. It's like, I think the presence of fan service can actually make me be uncomfortable sometimes because it feels like that my worry is the expectation is that simply because whether it's a game or a film or a TV show, recognize, you know, that my kind of, uh, that basically they're going to play to my sunk cost in those franchises that because I see a name I recognize or a character I recognize, I'm going to think this is good actually, uh, regardless of what else it's doing. I think that's the, that's the, you know, damningly true of Rise of Skywalker particularly. Um Whereas actually I will tolerate that stuff when it's presented with some flair and by an interesting director. So for example, Robert Rodriguez directing the the previous episode of Mandalorian um, and that feeling like a throwback to the particular kinds of films he used to make and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. The, the case and, and um, it does it mean that I wouldn't rather have something new with that craft. Probably do I understand that, as you say big comfortable nostalgia is the thing right now and that is what ultimately provides the financial stability or the kind of sense of stability that allows big studios to subsequently take bigger risks with who they give control of shows and what the content of those shows can be maybe uh, i've talked myself into the middle and now i'm stuck <laughs> like um and but i think i think particularly as it pertains to mass effect that's the thing that kind of this uh, that hangs over this is such a question mark is like what game are they going to make are they going to and what game are they going to be pressured to make necessarily like you know that the story of recent bioware is is a studio being told make an open world game and making andromeda and kind of making a mass effect game at the same time or make a you know destiny style mmo and making anthem but also kind of making a bioware game at the same time if they were allowed to make a Bioware game, I'm actually excited about it. Yeah, I so. don't know what other genre they're going to be asked to produce, whether it'll be a shooter or a kart racer or a match three puzzle game or whatever. But I, that's my big fear, I suppose, is that, you know, has as, as this stuff has been tinkered away in the background, has EA also evolved to the point where they will, for example, just let that studio do its thing? Yeah, I, I think I'm encouraged by uh, the recent... Um... Rogue Squadron type game. What was it called? Oh gosh, um, uh, Squadrons. Squadrons. There we go. Yeah, um, that, that was just like a, a completely self-contained, brilliant use of the license. Really, really mm. good stuff. And also, I've been uh, a couple of weeks ago. I replayed um, Respawn's Star Wars game, uh, Fallen Order. Fallen Order. Thank you. And uh, both of those are just like completely self-contained, really, really fun. And yeah. that gives me hope for the fact that yeah, you're perhaps like being a bit less obsessive about the idea of having everything be a service game that some games mm. just should be a, a fun self-contained experience like so like cyberpunk is um mm. how well did squadrons do pretty no well idea. i think um it got a it got an update this week actually that they said they wouldn't do um you know when they launched it they sort of controversially said but you know almost expressed like a rare level of like openness about like we don't expect to update this um yeah but this week they added two new ships and a bunch of new stuff and did a big update to it. Um, it's got B-Wings and TIE Defenders now. Um, I'm planning to go back to it, uh, I think, fairly soon. And I, in the time that I've played it, although I have reset a little bit, I had a bit of a break from it over the last couple of weeks, um, there wasn't like a struggle to find a game 
I think. I think the big smart decision they made is that it has like complete crossplay with the consoles. Mm-hmm. And I think that was inc- like to have, I think, not to go too off topic, but I think if you're launching a fairly niche multiplayer centric game, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast in terms of how doomed they tend to be, um, the smartest decision you can make is not subdivide your player base by platform. Absolutely. Like there is one cohort of squadrons players and it seems to be big enough to, to keep that game ticking along. Um, so yeah, I think it did. I think it did reasonably well. I, I wouldn't, um, I hope it gets more support because I think they built a really strong core and, Mm. Uh, certainly like you know delivered on fantasy and i think you're absolutely right tom that it points to ea's willingness to make a game without maybe also requiring that the developers hook into some broader industry trend which is seems to be so often the thing that trips them up whether that's um battlefront's implementation of loot boxes for example right before that stuff got kind of heavily litigated or yeah like all the you know and and as is most kind of tragically apparent in the story of bioware over the last decade really um, where I would say that their last unqualified success really was Inquisition. And even then that was, you know, uh, as it's been subsequently discussed, heavily burdened by the requirement that they use Frostbite, for example. And that, you know, it's mm. almost like, I think that's a, a whole, the whole story is like, it, you know, with EA games, particularly over the last decade, like identifying what the millstone is yeah, that the right. developer has been asked to carry. <laughs> Yeah. Also, I I think there's a line to be drawn between Inquisition and Andromeda, um, mm. in the way that they were expected to be a certain type of open world game that didn't necessarily suit the fantasy of either of them. Although, yeah. having said that, um, I think like Andromeda was almost there because I think like actually going to planets and exploring the open world, uh, and actually kind of like you know uh, setting up settlements that kind of stuff is really nice idea. But the kind of checkpoint, open world, bland kind of desert uh, look was just didn't work for it. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's almost like it was trying to be ahead of its time. Almost like uh, mm. I don't think the tech was quite ready for it. What they wanted to do with that, I agree. Although I have felt vindicated by the number of um, like Andromeda was good actually takes that have followed this most recent Mass Effect announcement. Um, because obviously the announcement of a thing moving in another direction creates its counter balance. Yeah, yeah, so that's been, stop that. yeah, that's been nice. That's been nice, um, and yeah, and I've, I've voiced my like problems with Andromeda before, but like once you get through the first few hours, it's a perfectly good seven out of ten. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I, I mean, Frankly. I, I, and, and it gets better as it goes along as well. I said yeah, that I agree. Like it has a good ending. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the other news. News that may, maybe will set off a tickle of excitement in the brain of marsh let's see uh mm. uh disco Elysium. that's a game it was a good game and it was a good thoughtful game and it did very very well and that's a nice story that's a good success story that it did as well as it did um and as a consequence of that success they announced that in march it's getting a free update which will add a bunch of new content to the game it's going to come out on consoles but also and this is kind of mad it's getting uh voice acting for every every line Every single part of the game will, will go from being uh, text to fully voice acted, which I think is a kind of extraordinary both investment, but also shift in direction in some ways. And I don't mean that in terms of like direction of travel, but in terms of overall creative direction. I don't know how you guys feel about that. I think it's probably just necessary for it to be playable on console where you're not going mm. to be able to read a huge amount of text on a distant screen. Yeah. 
And, and I think actually on that basis, it's actually a really cool accessibility change. Like I, th- I do think that like reading heavy games have a quality of their own, but um, it's nice that th- this will make it essentially be the audiobook function for something that I think a lot of people would get something out of. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's something I particularly wanted uh, for it to be fully voiced, mostly because I can I can read quicker than the voice actors can del- deliver the lines. So mm. it's as a convenience, it's easier just for them to make their initial bark and then shut up and let me read the rest. But my my uh, I, I wouldn't say it's, I give it a high brain tickle rating, but it's nice okay. that it's still um, it's still oh, doing well. I really uh, love that game. Yeah, I'm not in a, not in a place to replay it uh, anytime soon though. Mm. yeah i think um i mean i don't want to echo the Maldus sentiment which is this is cool if it's good or it's good if it's cool um <laughs> but like but the other thing this introduces is a thing i like about bark plus reading school of rpgs is you get a sense of the character's tone of voice and then the rest of it happens in your brain and therefore the acting is as good as your brain can do um i do worry about what it's like to record and direct and implement vo for that much writing um, and maintain you know quality and tone throughout but that's more of a kind of it's good if they do it well and it's bad if they don't things are not that useful mm. as criticism yeah i mean it'd be interesting to know if they're retaining the same voice cast because that was a very variable talent <laughs> mm. across the entire the entire cast um i don't think i i really want to listen to some of them speak for very long <laughs> if i'm honest it's also as you you both said like it's an incredibly wordy game and like voicing every single line in that is going to be like you're going to be sitting there for hours. <laughs> yeah. um, frankly, um, it's 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 really cool. I really like that they're actually uh, building up the game and updating it and bringing it to consoles and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm with kind of with Marsh on this one. Whereas like, did anyone ask for this? Is this really mm. what you need? Um, yeah, the unbidden tickle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe i mean does this tickle your uh sense of i don't know uh creative justice that a game like that has done successfully and been successful enough to justify this i mean that's great i want them to to be hugely successful and make many more things agreed yeah give you know give them a budget maybe to do something new as well which would be great yep um let's see if anyone is tickled by the announcement of uh, a new perfect dark game <laughs> why why now why <laughs> but but uh, well i mean you know like so perfect dark was the kind of you know rare's successor to golden eye really like in terms of them yep. making a shooter um it, you know like a kind of it was set you know sort of near future spies and gadgets Kind of, I What's guess the protagonist kind of called? Is it is it Kate Dark? Or Joanna Dark, I think. Joanna Dark. There you go. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Look, it was it was the nineties or noughties. I can't quite remember. But yeah, they're doing a, they're doing a new one of these. Talking about nost- talking about nostalgia, right? Like right. nobody's only... nostalgic for this though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I mean, I I loved it. I had a great time with Perfect Dark, and not because of the campaign, but mainly because of the multiplayer and the fact that you could uh, customize the rule set of a given arena and um also it had ridiculous weapons that let you choose through walls and stuff uh so it, it felt like uh a console version of pc shooter that you got to mod but all the mods mm. were kind of built into the game and i love that about perfect dark uh having said that that was very much of its time but i don't give a shit about any of the characters or any or, or the world <laughs> or anything else about the game <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm not particularly keen to play it again 
No, I, I agree. I, d- I did enjoy it at the time, but I, I think it's one of those things that I've completely compartmentalized as a, a preceding era of my life that does not need to be resurrected in any kind of new form. It's like it's like them announcing they're going to make a, a new movie franchise of Jason and the Wheeled Warriors or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah. N- no, I, I, I don't need that. I, nothing in my body demands that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's almost like recognizing a name isn't isn't a tickle. Even if, it is even not if, a tickle. yeah, uh, not a tickle. Anti tickle. Well, actually, speaking of that, I didn't put this on the list. But worth mentioning. So, you know, how how did, speaking of the return of things, you know, we had the essentially spiritual successor to to Left for Dead in in uh, Back for Blood, Bound for Blood. Have I? Which one of those is it? Help. Uh, uh, bound. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, back. It's Back for Blood. Back yeah. for Blood, um, <laughs> which is. Turtle Rocks, um, yeah, essentially, you know, it's, it's described as a kind of, you know, spiritual success to left it in its own right. And I, I, you know, I'd, I'd heard rumblings of Left 4 Dead 3 or something along these lines for, for a long time, and it's cool to see it kind of made manifest. But watching the trailer, I realized that, like, I didn't, I don't, I think Left 4 Dead is also a game that in my mind is very much of its time, but I also realized that maybe I'm not its core crowd. I went back to it actually like um, last month and mm. I was really unimpressed by it. I think like it's not aged well in terms of just how the guns feel, how they fire and also the pacing of the missions. I think like of its time, it was like really special, but I think it has like, I think it's not aged terribly well, Like the especially after playing Vermintide, Vermintide 2. Yeah. I think that those are the spiritual successes that really kind of pick up the baton of Left 4 Dead and, and move it forwards a bit. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what they, they do with it, because it did seem to have like a bunch of new kind of ideas in terms of big monsters that can change the environment, things like that. So I think there's a degree of benefit of the doubt, but I kind of agree. And actually, that's a really good segue to the, the last game that we were going to mention that was kind of shown at, at this week, which was kind Dark of the first Tide. footage of, yeah, Dark Tide, 140,000 Dark Tide, which is um, Fat Sharks. Again, like... 40k Vermintide. That's that's what it is. Yep. That's the thing that it is. Yep. I'm but just... despite being just that, and also conceptually very similar to a game that didn't impress me at all, Back for Blood. Um, I, this is maximum tickle. I have to say, I'm really oh. Oh. fully tickled in I'm... every uh, part of my flapping, sweating body. I'm, I'm similarly tickled. I'm absolutely excited for this one, but I don't think I've ever heard you be quite as excited for any game, Marsh, before. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know uh, it may not actually be the game so much as the really well put together trailer that I admired. It shows the art of trailer making uh, to its fullest. This because you compare the Back for Blood cinematic trailer with the cinematic trailer for um, Dark Tide, and there's just there's just a sense of pace and drama to the Dark Tide footage, which is comprised of quite disparate, not necessarily coherent scenes. It's splicing between quite disparate actions, but it feels much more like a, a dramatic arc than what's being kind of more kind of ploddingly told uh, narratively in the Back for Blood one. And it also helps it has music that's really nicely cut to the action. I don't know. I mean, um, maybe the game's bobbins, but um, if it if it plays anything like that trailer feels, then it, that'll be amazing. I think Fat Shark absolutely get that universe. Like they really understood. Uh... In Vermintide, they really understood the old world, and like they're obviously just massive nerds on the team who just get it. 
and I, I get that sense from Dark Tide as well that they yeah that they really know how to nail that particular mm. sense of um uh, it's a, it's a difficult because Dark Tide is kind of like you're not quite Space Marines but you're in that kind of below tier where you're just like in hive worlds and that kind of stuff and fighting Nurgle. Um, and I sound like a massive nerd here but, uh, describing that. But um, I think that the understanding and the sense of tension mm. and the atmosphere, it just comes from knowledge of the fiction. And the fact that there is actually like a, a huge solid body of fiction behind a 40k game that doesn't exist for a Left 4 Dead type game. No, I'm just kind of also zombies are so played out, and they were played out more or less by the time Left 4 Dead came through as well. But Left 4 Dead managed to be the best of the zombie games of that era, mm, and uh, I just, uh, I'm just, you know, beyond beyond sick of them now. They're just almost nothing. They don't excite or engender any kind of feeling in me whatsoever. It's just like game wallpaper is you know, the zombies. Yeah, I tell you one one thing I wanted to pick up. Just sorry to be really boring about the the, the trailers, but there's a moment in uh, the Dark Side uh, Dark Tide trailer. Where it's been accompanied by this this kind of uh, you know pumping music, and then it it cuts away to this a, a scene in some sort of dank corridor somewhere, um, and the the music sort of drops down as though it's at a distance, you know, and, mm. and the kind of the zombies, oh, not zombies, sorry, cultists, sort of wake up as though this music is being carried by the player <laughs> contingent with them, like they're bringing the soundtrack. To the action uh, that's it's just a that would you know. be an extremely warhammer thing for them to do like to bring their own choir <laughs> like noise yeah. makers mm. yeah or bring um or bring like a, you know a pipe organ that fires missiles because <laughs> yeah. that's a thing so it really is <laughs> um very much looking forward to that i think that's one of my most anticipated anticipated games yeah year, actually to be honest i think i think i'm curious about is how they handle ranged combat there's me being boring about it but like so mm. I, because one thing is this feels quite more, a lot more familiar than Vermintide did initially in that there are already games like Deathwing, for example, which are four player co-op smash a lot of Gribbly's 40k games. Like this has kind of already been done in that game. You are Space Marine Terminators stomping around a Space Hulk blasting things. Um, and, it, you know, it's a little janky, um, but it functions. And um, I think one of the, Obviously, one of the things that was great about Vermintide was the license, the the feel and the mood of it all. But the other thing that was great about it was, I think, shifting that kind of co-op experience to melee um, with sporadic ranged. And yeah. I know that different classes have a different balance of that. And that worked really well for me because I think like the most interesting scenarios in Left 4 Dead were always when you had melee weapons. It's why they put such a huge emphasis on them in the second game. Mm. Um, and there's something for me that is more exciting about sort of being in the thick of it and so it was, it was also notable to me that the, the dark tide trailer put a lot more emphasis on melee uh, or felt to me a lot more emphasis on melee than range combat so I'm, I'm interested to see how they make shooting things with a las gun um as interesting as pummeling things with a power hammer because those are the seem to be the two poles right that that game is going to be kind of stretched between but i also think in general the kind of horde wave-based sort of co-op stuff um benefits from sort of chunky melee systems because what feels so good about Vermintide. so yeah. yeah i think yeah i think i think that they cleave so closely to the fiction and in the fiction lasguns are famously rubbish mm. <laughs> so i imagine it would be like chip damage and then when you actually get close you do stuff but that's like total speculation i i, I just i'd need to play the game i really want to play yeah it. yeah um anyone for that charco can uh get me in 
to any sort of any access, please do because I want to smash things in the Warhammer Forty Thousand universe. Very excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, and also, you know, Marsh, I actually really appreciate that you did the thing that we actually can do after the Game Awards, which is review the marketing, <laughs> like review its <laughs> success as marketing, because that's really, really all you can do after a big set of reveals like that is uh, figure out who did the trailers well. Um, but also, it feels like uh, a good segue to talking about the game that we've all been playing um, <laughs> when it comes to reviewing the marketing. Because, yeah, I mean, Cyberpunk came out, didn't it? And, yes, it did. And we're in one of those fortnights, discourse-wise, aren't we? Um, and yeah, I don't really know where to start with this. I, I Maybe mm. the most useful thing to do would be set out some terms. I think we decided that we're not going to spoil anything in this conversation um, for a bunch of reasons. So you can listen safely if you haven't played the game yet or if you're not fully through it or anything like that. Um, maybe we should all, all like lay out how much we've played so far, like something like that, just to kind of ground this. Yeah. I don't know if it's this is a mad thing to do, but is it worth saying what the game is just in case there's a listener somewhere out yeah, there? Yeah, actually, I think it kind of is. Who hasn't uh, heard what it is yet. It's yeah, a lot of so, things as well. Like it's, it's not mm. an easy game to sum up, but yeah. Um, yeah, go, go ahead, Chris. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. So um, Cyberpunk 2077 is now apparently the uh, biggest PC gaming launch of all time, which is notable in and of itself. Um, it is CD Projekt's new RPG, uh, CD Projekt known for the Witcher series and kind of increasingly uh, through over the, who over the course of that series developed a very, very, very passionate fan base around what were initially fairly niche um, RPGs spinning out of the kind of Neverwinter Nights mold and ultimately ending up very much their own thing. Um, it is the first uh, uh, video game adaptation and the most substantial adaptation ever of um, Art Halsorian Games and Mike Pondsmith's Cyberpunk setting, which uh, was a tabletop game released in 1988, I believe, um, uh, which is has a close relationship with the origins of the cyberpunk genre, but is not the origins of, of that genre by any means. It's just one of its kind of um, particularly earliest game representations or, or re reimaginings. Um, it's had a sort of interesting journey of itself. And the game itself is, uh, I would I would describe it as like uh, just taking budget and production values and aside for a second, it's effectively what you'd get if you married something like Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines or an Obsidian game from 15 years ago to GTA. Um, a, yeah, an open world first person role-playing game effectively about uh, managing life on the wrong side of the law in a uh, reimagined LA effectively mm. um, while you also contend with um you know, uh, a wide cast of characters, uh, variously uh, deep or not RPG systems, and the absolute bucket load of jank that comes with <laughs> trying to make a game when you're Obsidian. Um, I, th <laughs> I think that's, that's actually a, a, another thing that's worth just getting out of the way before we delve into the rest of the discussion is how many months would you guys say it needed more in development? Six to eight. You know, assuming quite unnecessarily humane working conditions. 100% six to eight. Yeah, I, I would say a whole year probably. Mm. It just not, think... not just because there are the bugs, but because there's a fucking ton of bugs. It's probably the most hella broken game 
I've played since Vampire: The Masquerade Bloodlines, which yeah. is was famously not not functional. Um, but I think there's just there's also just a lot of design work that needs to be done to get the game systems to link up or in some cases exist. Work. Yeah, um, mm. and it feels like a lot of the stuff. I mean, I uh, yeah, I know mean, you could probably speak to this, but it feels like um, the product of a large number of quite siloed development teams working on their own segment of this world, and project management hasn't quite wrestled that into a coherent whole. Like fundamental stuff, like there isn't you know a pedestrian vehicle or combat AI that can cope with the situations environments it finds itself in, or the mm. level design doesn't really look at the system design. And the upgrade system doesn't look seem to have really much bearing on what else is going on in the world. None of it really is is there. It feels like um, maybe a, maybe another year, a whole year of development would have some of those things. I describe that much are like fundamental design issues. Like it's not yeah. something you could patch. Like it's it's fundamentally like when they started the project, that's what they. Should yeah, be. I think that's why I would call it six to eight. I think the six to eight to get it to a point where it kind of does the things it's setting out to do. And I think Marsh is also right that like three months after that, or a year after, or six months after that, I could imagine the patch that like we had time now to rethink some of this design, right? Mm. Like it, it is so retro in its way, in, in so many ways. And that's one of the reasons I call back to Bloodlines, like, cause it feels like one of those RPGs from way back when that you, you would maybe try and get it working when it came out, give up and then get the gold edition <laughs> it, like <laughs> yes. two years later for, yeah, for 10 sure. quid from the bargain bin at game or electronics boutique. And then, then it would work you know, or the, or the community would fix it. It's one of those. And I think there's so many different angles to take on this. I feel like we've just started off down a bunch of different roads at the same time. But one of them is that it is an incredibly strange thing to encounter that feeling, which I associate with some of my favorite games ever made alongside the kind of audience expectation, marketing, uh, industry focus discourse that you would associate with a rockstar game specifically, I think like with with what people expect from a gta on launch married to a game that's much closer to what people expect from like fallout new vegas at yeah launch. right mm. that's mm. that's well and like you know if you asked me like would you rather play fallout new vegas or gta 5 it'd be fallout vegas every single fucking time even at launch because i well i mean i maybe i'm a bit alone in this but i hated gta 5 single player and so there's always going to be reasons that polish doesn't do everything for me um, yeah but it's strange to see those two things trying to occupy the same space I think, like, yeah, so we've kind of front-loaded with, like, a lot of the negatives, which we'll get back to, but I just wanted to kind of, like, throw some positives in, in that mm -hmm. I think there's some brilliant character writing in this, and there are actually, um, in a world that, on paper, Night City is the ultimate nihilistic kind of futuristic fantasy, where people die and no one cares. But in this game, like, I've experienced, like, um, actually, you know, th there are great characters who... Uh, care about their families and they care they care about their origins and like where they come from and that's a constant theme throughout the game so I, I feel like there's some actually really good writing and good characters in this game that I've really really enjoyed interacting with in spite of the bugs and the crashes and mm. all that stuff let's let's zoom out a little bit because I think I think you're right and I think it's going to be hard to kind of like try and pass this out so maybe yeah. go back to go back to that original way of kind of front loading this like uh, well, Tom, like you know, how much time have you spent with it now, and kind of what is your overall feeling? Like, um, so I think that's the only way to structure this. Yeah, so I've played about ten hours. Um, so I've gotten out with kind of the quite uh, roller coaster uh, intro, two to three hours, where you're pretty much you know going through 
a set amount of missions. Uh, and now I'm actually like able to take on different jobs and roam around the city and actually explore and uh, and it, it's become an open world. And uh, yes, I've yeah, I, I'm really really enjoying it. I really like it. I think. Um, but yeah, how about you guys? About twenty hours in, um, I haven't really done uh, anything other than the main quest line, um, and I'm having a terrifically good time with it. I, even though it is frequently absolutely exasperating. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that I want to do just doesn't really work and the encounter design just doesn't have the affordances to ac- account for stealth and so forth. But and but nonetheless, like you say, that, that that's the central plot line, which I'm just enraptured by, is, is really, uh, it's a really engaging, quite complicated uh, cyber yarn and the way it unfolds allows you a huge amount of leeway over how you approach things uh, in a way which feels like it really acknowledges player agency even if it doesn't I don't know if it particularly branches in any significant way but mm. I don't really care about the branches that I haven't gone down if you know what I mean I'm, yeah. I'm just mm. interested in the branch that I'm currently on feeling like it has recognized me as a player and, and my actions and it really does and it it feels like there's quite a lot of um, rich and nuanced ways in which you can uh, express yourself in the, this kind of tangle of agendas that you find yourself among. Yeah, and uh, I, I found myself like comparing it to GTA constantly because it's such an obvious ref- reference point. Um, but the way that, like, uh, as Chris, I think you alluded to earlier, like GTA is this soulless, horrible, cynical, making a joke out of everyone thing. Uh, Cyberpunk is not that at all. Like it. it Hmm. It, like, it really it celebrates people's identity and uh, it's a lot of hearts isn't it yeah 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 and like heart is such like a kind of general term but it, that's really true i think for cyberpunk um and also it's kind of uh crystallized some stuff um that i've been thinking about for years about multiculturalism uh which i will get into later <laughs> <laughs> so for my part i've played i've only played about five hours of it now i have not had it's been interesting to encounter a game like this that at one point in my life like these were the games that i kind of lived for really and uh, meant a lot to me to be able to like sink into one basically at length i knew <clears throat> that life doesn't really work that way particularly at the moment and i haven't really been able to ever play it for more than an hour at a time and i think it's not the game that you only spend an hour in and jump out to do something else um but also as i kind of spent some more time with it i realized that um and I was talking about the positive, but there's a lot of jank and I don't feel like I need to push through the jank to um, get to the game it, it is under the surface, <clears throat> i.e. something I'm quite attached to. So my decision has been like, I am overdue an upgrade at this point on my PC. It's been five years. So early next year or soonish, I'm going to you know order a new PC. I'm going to wait X amount of time, whatever it takes, a couple of weeks, month or so for like those first kind of significant patches to roll in. And then I will play it. And so what that has left me with is a kind of comfortable feeling of treating this first half a dozen hours, first couple of missions, as a kind of getting to know you thing, at least for the purpose of having my own opinion about the game, but also um, something I've always done with games like this where I do want to kind of sink into them eventually, which is get a feel for what my initial decisions actually mean so that I can go back and come back in with the sense of my character that kind of is, is appropriately tuned to the game they've actually made, not the one I was expecting. Um, so with that being said, so my answer in that regard is like, I've played five hours of it and I'm going to stop now, which is a kind of, cause I, I do think that it, it probably will be the game it needs to be in three to six months. Um, 
that being said, I was really pleasantly surprised by a lot of things about it. Um, and that, and, and that's coming from quite a personal point of view of like, I think a lot of the, uh, there's just been a lot of ugliness around its launch and there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of, um, very appropriate, uh, issues being raised and discussions being had about its setting, its world, it's, it's the manner in which it was made, all of this stuff. And then also, you know, uh, a kind of, a, 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 certainly a, a nastiness expressed by a fan base towards anyone uh, criticizing the game, etc. And so trying to come at it on its own terms and then being pleasantly surprised by, as you guys have said, its humanity was one part of that. But also I think particularly what has felt like when it works, a kind of a generational step forward in terms of how to um, immersively tell uh, a reactive story uh, in a game like this. Like I, I didn't realize that it wouldn't have, for example, uh, the kind of snap, you know, snap to NPC dialogue systems that almost every game has. I the really fact like that, that yeah. I love it. Like the fact that dialogue is is sort of seamlessly integrated into characters in the world who interact believably with their surroundings. The fact that your phone and text messages are kind of all accompany that. And I think I think sometimes they're used in a little bit of an immersion breaking way, but particularly when the notifications don't vanish and stay on screen forever, or when a subtitle for a conversation you've walked past is still visible yeah. and you're four miles away, like. <laughs> Um, or all that stuff, but when it works, um, it creates the sense that you fl- you flow from one activity to the next, and the stuff in there, creative decisions in there that are, are my kind of like RPG purists dream stuff, like never taking you out of first person, apart from when you're driving and then it's an option. Um, you know, letting you kind of experience everything your character is experiencing through their eyes, even when you know, in, as in one early scene, your eyes are necessarily where you think they'd be. Um, <laughs> Like uh, and and playing with that and and the sort of um, diegetic incorporation of all of its technology, which obviously it's uniquely able to do, given its setting, into the UI and all of these elements, all of that stuff is really strong. And I think it's one of the things that, as you said, Marsh, means that even if the story doesn't branch tremendously, it feels like it's reacting to your decisions in meaningful ways, and it feels almost uncanny sometimes the way that things you've decided to do sort of a flow into the course of otherwise very kind of uh, intricately directed moments. And that feels, that feels great when that works. That feels like how you imagined uh, conversations and something like bloodlines were playing out when what you were actually seeing was like a close zoom of a old source engine face going through the same two emotes like that. And that feels genuinely amazing. And I think my favorite parts of it so far have been, basically just those moments, those sort of scenes in bars and clubs and, you know, dens where you kind of interact with characters and emerge with your kind of new objective or something, and then driving slowly through the city at night, kind of taking in the kind of incredible sense of place. Um, and also the, the as, you, as you have said, the humanity on display. And I think between those two things, they capture something that I'll probably return to, because I think we've uh, maybe holding some of the spicy takes in reserve at the moment, but like, the the heart for me because I've I've run the tabletop game I, I ran it for PlayStation a couple of years ago for a video series um, I'm fairly familiar with it and I think the heart of it as a piece of cyberpunk fiction even though it's very uh, retro in a lot of ways and and it has its own deep nostalgia for the eighties um, really um, the heart of it whether you agree with this or not politically is always that it's not really about uh, challenging the system the horrible system that contains and encloses people it's not really the game about overthrowing the mega corporations or really changing the system it's the game about what people do when they live in a system like that um i think surviving 
yeah it's you know i think the you know mike pondsmith has given the example a couple of times like that you know one of the the the, the baby's first cyberpunk adventure scenario that, that is often trotted out is basically about um protecting your apartment block from a like a real estate developer but with cyber guns and like but those are the sorts of stories that cyberpunk always boils down to like some people want to do a thing but they're thwarted by each other and the system um and there's a limit on their power in terms of how much of that they can change it's just who survives and who takes care of who and then how does it affect the actual people who live in it and, and actually for the game which i expected to go off on one in a massive way in terms of the big mythology of the series or the big kind of those you know much bigger kind of cyberpunkier kind of epic stories uh, has a really nice at least at the start attention to just the day-to-day experience of people and like what it means when people are decent to each other versus at dicks and 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 all of that and i think that's that's really successful uh, um uh, yeah so it's all that all the stuff that gta is absolutely missing yeah but, you know yeah. what i mean um just just doing a parody this isn't a parody like it's a it's something different uh and i think like particularly what you described that tension between uh, the sort of urge to change the whole system and revolutionize everything versus just surviving is actually very well uh, explored in the game based on like uh, Johnny Silverhand. And yeah, uh, we, I'll say no more about it because I think it's something everyone should discover. But I find that relationship really fascinating. It's the idealism versus, yeah. you know, the, the pragmatism of just existing in this city is really good. Yeah. There's some very, very interesting characters uh, in the game, Johnny Silverhand being one of them, and what they represent is actually quite complicated, and they're not necessarily just simply ciphers for one political position or another, which is often the case with these sort of RPGs. They are quite conflicted and neurotic, and they don't necessarily do things which are consistent, and uh, and even those inconsistencies are acknowledged, and, and, you know, uh, it, it paints a picture of there being no obvious solutions to this terrible state in which humanity has managed to get itself into that said i do think that despite it having the 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 game is sort of in conflict with itself in terms of its tone because while it does avoid some of the kind of more glib um gta-esque pastiches stuff um, and it does have these characters who feel quite rounded and have heart and uh, you know enjoy community and other things wholesome things um, there is a there is a very obvious edge lord <laughs> side to it, which is um, pretty pretty obnoxious, and it's 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 so adult, it is childish at times. I think. Yeah. Um, there's, obviously, this stuff has been picked up in in pre release, and the game has been lambasted for this stuff. Um, I don't think it typifies the the tone of the game of the whole as a whole because this is a huge game. And there's lots of parts to it, as we've said. There's some quite deep and meaningful stuff going on. But it's hard to put aside some of the stuff which just whiffs of uh, casual, sexist, male gazist stuff, and um, there's just like it, like a <laughs> there's an item description for a warhammer, um, some kind of tech warhammer um, that you find uh, a, a woman carrying, and it says it's made for a woman, but it won't fit in a handbag. And it's just like, oh, fuck's sake! No, like did, did Bernard Manning write that line? You know. Mm. Right. Take my cyber wife. No, really, take her. It just feels like <laughs> it just feels like something out of nineteen seventy-seven, not yeah, seventy-seven. Mm. And it just and it's not that it's 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 sexist or or backwards. It just feels out of place for the fiction in a way. It just feels strangely out of time. 
something I find really interesting about it, and I think this is a good subject to dig into and might lead to the things you're talking about, Tom, is that so cyberpunk is noir, like, and it's always been noir, um, but it trades out, you know, the kind of rule of cool 30s that most noir adopts for a kind of hyper 80s. Um, and, you know, the, the, the to this day, the RPG source books and things are written in this sort of fake 80s, like... 80s styled street language which is rooted in in a mix of just a massive pile of influences um some rooted in a real sense of uh like uh how people talk and other in just like how people talk in comic books how people talk in 2080 how people talk in judge dread all of this kind of like that very <coughs> extreme with a big x kind of uh 80s 90s nostalgia uh, which is an aesthetic in and of itself, right? Like there's a there's a vibe there that you might not like, but it's sort of uh, in and of itself, not necessarily incorrect, um, just by virtue of its existence. But it is, um, but it, it can be discordant when it is in inconsistently threaded into the experience of the game. So, for example, when like uh, a kid in the game or a character in the game is speaking to you in this sort of highly stylized way, I think it works because the game is, I think, intelligent enough to gesture at the humanity that underlies that and also to kind of um, thread it through with its overall aesthetic. But when it's in like a menu, for example, it could still work, um, but then it's something like about the voice of the game itself. And then when it's in like, for example, an item description, as you say, that is just sort of pointlessly kind of, um, you know, uh, backwards feeling for no for no discernible reason, I think it, it it, it doesn't mm. work. And I think that that's a tricky, a really tricky balance to strike. And also um, uh, a tricky thing to process, like the, the question I always think about is like, people want different things from their sci-fi, obviously, and they want different things from their presentations of the future. And cyberpunk is so rooted in the past, in our past, that I feel like, if it manages to feel like it's about the present, that's a win. Um, and I think there's, there's something, um, there's something about it's, um, I, I might get lost in this point a little bit, but it's, it's an, it's a, it's trying to navigate this sort of knowingly retro version of the future. You know, the, the one of the under, things underpinning cyberpunk originally was this idea that we didn't get in the eighties. It was clear that, humanity wasn't going to get the Jetsons future. They were heading for something else. And and all of its aesthetic is driven out of, uh, you know, extrapolations and, and fears, um, a mixture of like fear and wonder of what that brings and all of its issues. I think a lot of its representational issues are rooted in the fact that it's based on ex, you know, uh, ex, uh, extrapolations of the, 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 you know, fears and, but also the cultural values of the 1980s. And therefore, it's always going to fail to meet people's benchmarks in terms of futurism, I think, or other kinds of sci-fi yeah. that are related to it, like you know, transhumanism and futurism, etc. Um, whether or not it should be judged as failing on those grounds, I don't really know, because obviously it, it does. But it's also navigating a, a fantasy space that I think is very much uniquely its own. Not that, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be absolutely questioned, but it's such a, it, I just think it's such a deeply strange proposition. And I think for me also a deeply strange thing to not be niche, to now be the biggest launch in the world, to be this kind of cultural um, moment. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant though? Like it's for me, like uh, all those questions are like completely valid, but I think that's, uh, I'd much rather a game like this be the biggest thing in the world than Bioshock. 
where the hmm. politics were just like completely you know clarified and the good guys are bad guys and I, i'd much rather this interesting piece of i was about to say text uh this interesting piece of media that is actually does have layers that you can investigate mm. yeah i feel like i haven't played enough of it to comment in that regard because i really wanted to get people thinking about it my i think my my sort of big thought about it i guess is that it feels comfortably conservative in its notion of a, a notion of cyberpunk and, and obviously there's there are many 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 takes to that effect online at the moment but i don't think yeah, they're wrong absolutely. either it's comforting like we've gotten to the point where like i guess this is what i'm saying like you know you have a game and a story that even in its opening moments revolves very heavily around the conflict a conflict that's core to the tabletop game this conflict between militech which represents 80s america 80 reaganist kind of 80s mm-hmm army army man america with its every every militech agent looks like a top gun fighter pilot like um extraordinarily uh, rooted in that time uh versus arasaka which is a uh the, you know the, the the same sort of japanese corporate trope that occurs in almost all cyberpunk fiction as a result of you know um paranoia about you know, Asian uh, economies and culture rising up uh, in the eighties about about what it meant that in the eighties every piece of technology you owned it felt like was like a Walkman or something like this. All of the best technology was coming from Japan, and what would that mean culturally? Like, um, and I think it's off. Like, I guess what I'm saying is those are those are the fears of a different time, and they're actually no longer reflective of the actual cultural life of the present. What they've gained instead is a kind of retro cachet that people enjoy and that's such a, a wild thing to occur in the course of a human in the course of only 30 years really and particularly for that to then be this to be the the big thing that everyone's talking about now like mm, that's really interesting i there's definitely um the retro element is, rings completely true for the japanese characters and the japanese um organizations in the game though i would say that like, those themes are recurring today with china and uh, mm the paranoia about you know technology coming from china i think that that's like a that is a perennial ongoing concern and it's a type of xenophobia and it's a type of kind of paranoia that i think st- is still relevant and it does it rings quite well through the game i think mm. uh, yeah like i said i don't think i played enough to know if it, it comments on that stuff at all or, or kind no, of complex, I- adds complexity to it no, I wouldn't say comments on it yet, uh, based on what I've said. Uh, again, like uh, actually, one of the things I like about the game is that it it doesn't judge too much. Like it doesn't like say, oh, these uh, the Japanese people are bad, or you know, the Hispanic gang is bad. Like it, it, it's not like that at all. Like, it's it's all you get to know all of them, and you're just kind of like juggling your life in between all of these different factions and these different purposes and you can empathize with all of them apart from the corpse <laughs> it's just pure evil <laughs> uh but uh, yeah what I, are I, they <laughs> who knows um yes they are um <laughs> as far as i could tell uh, but yeah uh, that's kind of what i like about it like it's more it's it, there's more depth to it than the witcher 3 for example um and the Witcher 3 actually did a good job of like like putting you in front of the invading army and like talking to uh their generals within the first three hours of the game uh the, the north guardians for example uh, and actually like 
you, you sort of travel through all these different circles and learn everyone's different perspectives. And I think like cyberpunk is just a much more pure version of that. Um, but I don't know. I'm still forming my thoughts on it, to be honest. Yeah, I think the interesting thing you raise about it being simultaneously this 80s um, nostalgia and also being some sort of vision of the future is that the game frequently, and this is true of not just cyberpunk, but a lot of dystopias, has its cake and eats it um, because it can distance itself from some of the kind of more noxious stuff from its sort of uh, 80s setting by saying it's a pastiche of cyberpunk. And it can also distance itself from, for example, its presentation of exploited commodified sex by saying well isn't it terrible that people are are forced to do these sort of prurient things at the same time as obviously titillating uh the player and i think that sort of um uh well it's a hypocrisy that sort of hypocrisy is not at all um ultimately justified (laughs) by by the game or even really acknowledged or explored by it i don't think um I don't know that it's worse here than in other games. I think its attitude towards its presentation of sex is very uh, adolescent and confused. At the same time, it, this it feels sort of like a sideshow to really what the game is about. Um, um, I don't think it shouldn't be criticised for that, but it does it does feel like a even though the sex is very in your face, it feels like it is ultimately a, a kind of a lesser part of of the game's purpose. But I, I think like when a game presents an open world. And it's obviously like politically charged. These things really matter, and they uh, they'll particularly matter to certain members of the audience who are playing it. Um, and I, I agree with you that like a lot of that presentation is adolescent and is about kind of like conquest uh, rather than actual like relationships and stuff. But I wonder if you like could expand on what you just said, Marsh, about like those themes and why you found them particularly immature. I think its presentation of nudity is interesting. Um... Because off the bat, you you recognise that the game has full uh, uncensored nudity in it. Because it when creator? you treat your character, yeah, your character creator presents you with a, a nude character with several different penis options, different nipples that you can select, um, and yet uh, in a later cutscene in in the game, you are depicted in the shower. Uh, and you have pants that you cannot remove. You're just, you're otherwise naked, but you are showering in these sort of ironed-on pants. And I, I don't, I don't care that it's inconsistent. I wasn't desperate to see my own dentals in the shower, but it, it just feels like the game doesn't quite know how to commit to. It's not trying to be honest. There's some dishonesty with itself there. Like it's, it's, it's saying, oh, oh yeah, look, we've got dicks. And then at the same time, it it also shies away from presenting it in certain contexts within the game. I think it, and it's just it feels just really confused, like like an adolescent would be, I guess. Also, yeah, do you know I, that wasn't a bug? Um, I'm pretty sure it isn't a bug. <laughs> well, yeah. you know what I mean, but you know what I mean. That's the other kind of uncertainty I think that gets introduced. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's only like this happens so often in um, fiction and films and stuff like there's. Um, you know, people don't want to show male genitalia, but they're happy to show naked yeah. women, and that's absolutely a theme throughout cyberpunk. I've, uh, as far as I've played so far, and yeah, you're right, Marsh. Like, you can actually like, oh yeah, you can set your dick to medium size if you like, and look at it on this screen, but it will never appear again. And yet, like two hours later, you're lifting a naked woman out of a ice bath, and it's all on show. And you know, it's the, there's a kind of inequality of like, if you're going to do it, it, it should be, you know. I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, I, th- I yeah. think that mm. I was thinking about the thing that made me think of quite a bit was Blade Runner 2049. Um, mm. Blade Runner is enormously influential, obviously, on the original Cyberpunk. Yeah. And I think 2049, and, and but also I think the original Blade Runner um, has the you know commodification of female bodies as, as a similar point. Um, I thought 2049 was one of the things it did well. Like, the thing I like about that movie is everyone is very, 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 very tired all the time. And they seem really <laughs> tired of the endless marketing and commodification of bodies and technology that is being directed at them at all times, right? And and it exposes the, I think, the, the, the strength of that film lies in the way that it expose, exposes the kind of... Um, the emptiness and uh, loneliness and sort of omnidirectional exploitativeness of a uh, like misogynistic culture, basically to the point that I don't want to spoil that movie, but to the point that even the technology isn't safe from being um, led and exploited by, for example, um, you know, the, the commodification of female bodies, for example, um, I, I, it's hard for me to talk directly about what I mean without spoiling that movie. But like, mm. I think if you have seen it, you will know what I mean. And um, the and there is a there is a point to be made, a broader point about hey, like we can get all of this, you know, uh, greater technology. Um, sometimes the end result of it is just um, repetitions of the same, uh, you know, commodification and misogyny that that existed under the old technology it's the same thing just in higher res um and it's exactly you know nothing that that is the the dystopian view of tech right that we take all of our existing shit and then just sort of render it at, at greater detail yeah when given better tools um but however i think that is an extreme like i don't think that's a point that cyber 2077 is committed to i actually i agree with you guys that i think it's present like it's kind of hypocrisy in that regard where yeah you can see a willy um you can see a willy in the character creator and sometimes due to the best bug that has ever been in the game which we should refer (laughs) to back to um uh but otherwise you'll never see one but you'll all you know you'll see full frontal female nudity everywhere uh i agree that i don't think that is a commentary on the way that technology would likely to be used in the world even though i think unfortunately it is accurate that way um uh unfortunately um i think it is the i think it is the game having its cake and eating it there's there's a really interesting difference between the way the world is presented ambiently and the way that uh the game communicates ideas to you so for example Mm. like flavor text that is sexist is you know you read that as the the developers saying it in a way that like uh, the uh, like the world is sexist, <laughs> so um, like it, it is like a it's a dystopia and it's terrible. And if you're hearing like terrible like sexist messages over an intercom or something, then that's part of the world and that's something you're trying to fight or contest with. Whereas I think the, the this game gets confused when it puts words in your mouth or when it actually like shows you particular item descriptions that are tainted with that stuff. And that's not part of the world. That's actually kind of part of what the developers are kind of. Yeah, saying. I agree with that. I think I think there are some there are some like fairly shocking to your face, um, sexist sexism that is voiced by characters in the game and that is contextualized inside the game. And yeah. that was, um, you know, particularly playing as a female V, the main character. Right. Um, um, and that I thought was like both, you know, 
you know effective and how unpleasant it was but also i think one of the things about that is it almost feels at odds with the even though it's like on one hand i want them to do that because i want them to you know present the reality of a of a sexist society in that in that sense as part of a dystopia at the same time i was very conscious that like some of this stuff is pretty shocking and you know i i can only imagine how off-putting that might be um to uh to someone who's not in my position of privilege playing the game and mm-hmm. wanting the as advertised kind of empowering experience of being a cool punk a cyberpunk in the cyber future you know that sort of that and that is i think that particular tension of empower the player versus expose the expose the brutality and you know dystopian nature of the world that is also an area where the game is struggling to have its cake and eat it and it's almost an impossible thing to resolve i think particularly in that it also allows the player to present uh, in a variety of different ways and therefore the player cannot be not a participant in whatever um social um or you know racial or, or gender-based kind of um isms are present in the world of the game like and that that again is like it's just so full of these i think fascinating but like unnavigable um well maybe maybe i'm being too generous by saying unnavigable unnavigated complexities yeah i think i think it's very difficult to unpick what is diegetic and what is ex-diegetic sexism um one thing i would say is that i find the idea of uh binary sexism as it exists today in 2020 to be quite incompatible with a future in which uh, we are able to swap and change bits of our body <laughs> at will yeah, and even right. implant our minds into the bodies of others. I, I just, there's, uh, this is a problem with a lot of cyberpunk fiction, which reiterates the male gaze. Uh, what was that um, TV series? Not Altered Carbon? Yes, Altered Carbon. Um, Richard Morgan book. That was incredibly male gazy. <laughs> oh, and, the, and the book's yet, much worse. You know, <laughs> And yet, you know, characters uh, do, in fact, get their minds put into the bodies of sexes other than the one into which they were born. And the idea that the like uh, a male sexist perspective would survive and conquer all in that context seems untenable to me. Um, yeah, it does from the perspective of 2020. It doesn't from the perspective of 1988. And I think that's one of that's like one of the areas where like this is what I was saying. Earlier, it's one of the areas where like cyberpunk mm-hmm. as a genre but also this particular interpretation of it um struggles to adapt its message for the present because like the, because and i think it's particularly relevant to the to the question of its the sexism of the setting it's such a huge part of the aesthetic i don't know that it is though i mean i, I think i think you could get away with massaging the cyberpunk future into something which is more uh, pansexual in this kind of William Burroughs sort yeah. of sci-fi future. You know, this naked lunch is a better depiction of what the actual future <laughs> might look like mm-hmm. than I think a lot of the the cyberpunks, cyberpunks sexism. Right. What I'm poses. I'm not saying it can't be done better. What I'm saying is this game is rooted in a particular pop culture circa 1988 that has, among other things, like mostly naked robo ladies as like a central part of its aesthetic. I don't think that's not worth challenging. But I and I don't think it's not. There aren't better examples, and I don't think other more modern interpretations of cyberpunk haven't done this a lot better because they absolutely have. What I'm saying is, the moment CD Projekt decided to adapt this particular thing, they inherited that, and yeah. there's a lot of intent to 
there's a lot of um they that's it's the ship of theseus element of this of like they didn't want to make a cyberpunk game they want to make a capital c cyberpunk game and they set out their stall immediately that actually that sort of mix of tech and violence and sex as it was you know and sexiness as it was perceived in 1988 is exactly what they were going for because though that theme is absolutely central to the announcement trailer of the game seven years ago where a mostly naked woman springs blades out of her arms and the cops have to come so mm. you can ascribe intentionality to that and it's an intentionality to to ground that element of the world in projections of our cultural future circa 1988 that's what i'm saying like you can do better they you can do different they definitely chose not to yeah I, that's the big frustration for me is that um the setting has so much potential to actually examine identity politics uh which is you know is very much where we're going like in the you know and have been going for years now uh, like to actually self-identify self-identify and create your own personality and also just gender fluidity and like pansexualism and the game just absolutely swerves away from that completely like there's, mm. there's as far as i've played so far there's nothing in there but it's such a ripe kind of um setting to explore that mm. and it, it's uh i know i understand but there seems to be some sort of like aversion to actually talking about that i don't know like i think well it's a quite a conservative game that's the thing yeah right? it doesn't mean it can't it. have humanity but like but I, I think i think that's one of the i think one of the things of the current moment is the success of this game is is obviously frustrating people who want it to take advantage of the opportunity that it has in the settings that mm. it doesn't i think one of the good things that's come of that is um people who have been surfacing more recent work in cyberpunk or related genres that is um far more robust in its you know, approach to, you know, queer themes or, or other ideas of, of identity politics. You know, this is a moment where like cyberpunk as a genre is having a moment right now. And, 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 and it's not to say that like, uh, you know, a rising tide equally sort of lifts everyone up, but I think it's an opportunity for people to say, well, this game is like, this is the, um, you know, pretty conservative, um, solid mainstream expression of this genre while you're here if this pricks your interest here are other directions you can go in um pricks your have, interest <laughs> hey Man. to kind of explore those ideas uh you know the not to say that you shouldn't expect it from, from you know but like i don't think there's any medium where the thing that receives the biggest amount of investment or the thing that is the most successful the thing that has the most marketed is also the thing in the genre that's the most radical yeah um and um that has an uncomfortable relationship where when the name of the game is punk but you know <laughs> yeah. it's uh it's such a like uh, not to go off on what too much but like that is such a i think that's the thing the thing about this whole game situation that is so cyberpunk weirdly is the fact that like the heart of that setting really is you can't really change capitalism you can't really change the system and while you you accrue uh, compromise and guilt and um, and personal responsibility for every every act you take that makes you more and more kind of um, complicit in that system. You also can't help that you are. It is a depiction of people who are trapped in the middle of this big mechanism, uh, uh, just trying to live and trying to be entertained and trying to enjoy the wonder of technology, even as they confront the kind of the fear and the exploitation that can kind of come from it. Mm. And then you have this game which couldn't be more perfect an example of like what like what our system can make um 
given you know the conditions in which it was created given the conditions in which it was released you know if, if um, there was a good article recently by rob fahe which basically pointed out that if cd project hadn't uh, been listed on the warsaw stock exchange around the time yeah. of the witcher having its biggest scent it's kind of unlikely that cyberpunk would be pushed out early but at the moment you know that choice to you know uh, enter the the free market with the company basically means that further delays to this game would knock potentially billions off their share price so they right. they yielded agency in that regard in return for a reward but it has this knock-on effect for their game which can no longer be delayed its dev team can no longer be given the opportunity to spend um more time working on it um because the cost for doing so is astronomical compared to the cost of weathering the pr hit of releasing an unfinished game um you know all of this stuff it makes it basically the most like uh, it is like the most, it is the product of a megacorp and the systems that sustain megacorps. Um, and yet it is also at the end of a really difficult, shitty year for a lot of people, probably the, and, and, you know, for a lot of people who've been waiting for a game like this for a long time, one of the most sort of robustly, lavishly, generously furnished escapes available right now. Right. Yeah. Particularly when it works and that's its promise, right? Like that's why people are so emotional about criticism of it. That's why it's people are so attached to it among other reasons, because this is what games can be like when all that money and labor is directed in one point. And that, uh, like, is that, does that mean it should exist or not? Uh, ah, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's the late capitalist scream, everyone. Ah, like, because, because, you know, this has been a shit year and a lot of people want an amazingly realized place to go to. And Amazingly realized dystopia is a, yeah. is a strange place to escape to. But, but it's amazing that's but even it's, better. <laughs> but it's got fucking cyber cars and cool robot arms, and everyone in there is compelling yeah. and wears wearing a great coat, and it's fashionable in its way, and it's like it's compelling, and you want to sink into it, and it's a you know it feels old school in the sense that it wants to tell you a single story that is about you and that puts you at the center rather than be hooked into whatever service thing has been dropped onto bioware this week to return to an earlier conversation and yet it is also very much an expression of the system and that is the most cyberpunk thing about it basically um yeah. i think dystopias allow us to resign ourselves to uh, a, a hopeless morality that we no longer need to engage with i think they they are they're permissive scenarios which allow us to act out our vices uh without consequence or or, or fear of moral judgment because the world has got so to such a shit place that it can't be salvaged and doesn't matter anymore yeah that's i sort I of see uh, a, a slight <laughs> different aspect to that whereas like it could be worse I think that's the the main appeal of dystopia. <laughs> See, I think I think that is contingent on how people act in an interactive dystopia, actually. And I kind of agree with you broadly. Like, I think, um, you know, and uh, cyberpunk stuff that I've worked on, I've tried to push towards the complexities of utopia rather than dystopia for that reason, because I think it's um, asks more interesting questions of players. However, however. The notion that a dystopia simply enables you to act out as if nothing matters is not, I believe, how most people play in a dystopian setting. Um, people bring their values and they want to see them frustrated. Like that's the, you know, people want to try and be decent in an indecent world and be variously rewarded and punished for that. That's that's also the heart of noir in a lot of ways. That's where the tension comes from, right? Like yeah. the point of Forget It Jake, It's Chinatown isn't this whole film was pointless. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, 
I'd, uh, <laughs> in response to that, Chris, that's, that was very funny. Um, uh, you haven't met my sister, who uh, <laughs> uh, in GTA 3, I believe, she just climbed onto a rooftop where the cops could never, ever get her. and She just rocket launched every car that came past for an hour. Right. I mean, and, you know, and I've also seen you stand on the rooftop of beautifully presented Assassin's Creed Rome and throw two-handed longswords at men in the street. So, oh, yeah, absolutely right, and <laughs> yeah. that one of my favourite gaming experiences. That completely breaks the game, by the way. Assassin's Creed Two, get yourself a, a two-handed longsword and just throw it, and everyone dies in one hit. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I think just to, I, I, I think. Cyberpunk sort of gets uh, gets away with it more than a lot of dystopian fiction because, as we said, it does have this sort of heart about which is about community and friendships and family <coughs> uh, and survival within this terrible world. Mm. But I do think that, like broadly, the sort of two political choices for the wider world that your character can voice uh, are become an anarcho criminal engaged in a perpetual, futile terror war against the exploitative corpse, or basically accept that the world can never be fixed and get your slice of the corpo pie. And it sort of presupposes a world where goodness and generosity can't ultimately make a difference, which I, I mean, I find it bleak, but I also find it kind of unrealistic and lacking in imagination mm. in that like a, a sort of a broader problem with it's broader than cyberpunk. And this is again, true of like sci-fi f- fiction in general. I mean, this is in- indicated by the fact that, um, Star Trek struggled to kind of resurrect itself and find its uh, new kind of identity, and that there hasn't been an adaptation of, for example, like the culture novels. But we're, we're yeah. quite content having more bleaker scenarios. And it's it seems like they're only interested in going like, oh boy, the humans sure behave terribly and have a miserable time in this fictional hell that we've created for them. And like, I just don't see that that asks a very interesting question. Whereas Star Trek, which is flawed in a bunch of other ways, but it offered a much more interesting question, which is how would the highest minded ideals be applied to solving these different tricky problems and like fictions which aim to tackle problems rather than simply demonstrate how problems suck (laughs) it's just a much more interesting kind of thing yeah the mars novels are brilliant at this as well because they actually like delve deep into cultural difference and how that can or can't be resolved Mm. between different societies um and also the fact that we carry our cultures wherever we go (laughs) um and there's no such thing as like I was talking about thinking about multiculturalism earlier, and one of the things I really like about cyberpunk is the fact that uh, people that kind of belong to a culture, like they might have like Hispanic traditions that you engage with. Uh, for example, when someone dies, they've got like a particular type of wake that they do, um, and yeah, I, I find that more inspiring um, than the alternative, which is a government just imposing a massively secular uh, empty kind of uh you know imposition on people um and uh, yeah so science fiction i think like struggles to deal with that and i think like actually it's one of the big questions in britain at the moment oh god i'm really getting off track um is that like we don't like america has very defined communities that people openly talk about uh britain does too but we don't talk about them i think that's kind of an interesting thing that cyberpunk has raised in that uh when you actually like meet people from different cultures they are very proud of their culture and you get to know them and i don't know i think that's a really positive thing yeah i think it's an interesting point tom because i think the thing that i was going to say is that like one thing that's sort of interesting about it prickly about it i think is 
it's it's notion of those cultures i think as they're expressed in the world whether it's like you know and it's drawn criticism in the past for you know the gang called like the voodoo boys and, yeah, and you yeah. know, having a kind of mixture of like hispanic gangs and and asian gangs and sort of triad themed gangs and so on all of the stuff all of those tropes essentially um are tropes and they're drawn again from the 80s because everything is and in, in this game i think and um but also i think they speak to a design sensibility that was true when the game was written but has faded since which is there's definitely a, a sense around particularly like i would call it like the heyday of like kind of 80s comic books into, into 90s pop culture the stuff that really formed gen x pop culture rather than millennial pop culture um one of the main differences i think is a much lower um a much more open sense of like that it's completely okay to kind of grab real cultures and um make them perform fictional kind of backflips in your setting i think i think people nowadays are much more sensitive to, to the kind of appropriative uh nature of yeah. some of that stuff however the flip side to that and i appreciate this is a flip side that's very easy to articulate being somebody who's whose group is not is not hoisted uh, yoinked into settings in this way is it adds a a sense of, of richness richness and diversity to the world and actually in fact in a way that's one of the things that's so retro about it the notion that corporations would be so robustly themed by, by based on the places they're from um it has an idea about the heaviness of corporate culture that stems from the 80s when you know big kind of corporate monoliths really existed in that way we know for a fact now that corporations are actually very agile very slippery very kind of and they're capable of uh, adjusting their presentation to match the market in which they operate right that's your kind of that's that is you know the kind of the google the amazon the, the facebook way not that they don't have a kind of monolithic brand but um none of those companies like none of their logos include a big like american flag or a big star no, of course. Uh, and therefore the 80s failed to predict what that would look like somewhat and like uh you know and i think but i think i think you are right that there's also like a kind of um you know uh, a richness that comes with having that's that those voices in the game it's a it's a it's a tricky line to yeah, walk, isn't it? It is. It is, and it's it, it's to do, I think, with how what we value in that setting as a setting, because that's the other thing worth bearing in mind. Cyberpunk is inevitably political, both because of what it's talking about and and the fact that it's rooted in the the fears and ideas of a recent time in human history. But it's always, but it's easy to forget that, like, you know, traditional swords and sorcery fantasy is is fundamentally rooted in an idealized and thoroughly whitewashed Europe. Yep. Absolutely. right like this is true of almost every fiction and actually the other thing i would say is the thing that tremendous one of the things that tremendously makes cyberpunk more, pal more palatable to me than gta 5 which is a point we've returned to a few times is the fact that ultimately it is set in a fantasy world um it's not the real world through a through a kind of sardonic lens or the real world through a cinematic lens as, as gta often tries to be it's a it's a full-on fantasy it's a it's a very political fantasy um, but I don't think anything in its presentation is telling you this is a real place. Um, apart from apart from the occasionally clumsy use of real uh, culture, which can be uncomfortable, but I still think is it a more sufficient remove than GTA's use of exactly the same thing. Yeah, and often like it feels like a, a lot of that presentation is like that. The people who've written it, and created it, are desperately trying to be authentic and represent it correctly. 
and I never get that sense from GTA because it just takes the piss out of everything. And it's the South Park thing of just like just nihilistically tearing everything down. And on board of that, I much prefer yeah. Cyberpunk um, for trying to do this. Hmm. Well, it's it's quite notable that all of the factions uh, you can find f- fairly easy points for sympathy with uh, all of them and what they're trying to do. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, even the ones you end up wholesale murdering. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, I would like to talk a little bit about the game itself because I mean, I feel we obviously it, you <laughs> yeah. need to spend point. You, we spend so much time in it. It's it's the themes raised by it and I think it's important sure, to do so sure. but like I was so I tell one one story I was having a genuinely great experience with it and I am pretty early and so I was doing an early like I feel like I've had the sample of the experiences now but one of them was um my first early mission where the outcome of the mission could substantially branch based on what I was doing in my particular case um you know my my kind of my character is from a corporate background and, and her attempt to kind of navigate the scenario did kind of work but nonetheless, a massive kind of gunfight broke out as another faction invaded the place that I was kind of man- already managing a kind of tense standoff. And so it turns into this huge, um, you know, I, I, my character almost never draws her gun and I enjoyed being able to play that way. And as I've said, my favorite moments are just driving around the city and talking to people. Um, but it felt exciting for it to escalate in that way, a bit like the tabletop game where you don't always have to be fighting, but when you do, it adds, adds a bit of spice to it. And initially, I really enjoyed the encounter. You know, in the game's credit, like, I basically didn't do any shooting. And my objective was just to escape the environment. So I was, like, picking through a gunfight that already involved two heavily armed factions, occasionally using my scanner and my hacking and, and like, netrunning ability to, like, cause uh, lights to flick on and off to distract enemies or blind them by overloading their uh, ocular cyberware while basically running through what felt like a very cinematic um, fight. Um and barely having to to shoot or do anything which is good because the shooting feels absolutely terrible <laughs> um but like feeling like i was in quite a tense situation and, and crucially i think feeling like i was navigating it as my character like i don't think you know lethal forces are things so are still shooting people but like you know trying to get through the, the the situation with me and my kind of allies skin intact and then getting to the end of the area and reaching the exit door a door literally marked exit that the waypoint is linking to me to and it won't open and it's like oh all right well maybe um and so there's two things here the thing that was the bug was actually the door with exit above it wasn't the exit it wanted me to go somewhere else and the god's uh, sake and the 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 marker had taken me to the wrong place um but i was like obviously like okay well maybe i have to kill all the enemies before this will open that's dumb um and i turned around and the one faction had clearly won and there was only a handful of actual enemies left um, um, but I, and I went back all the way to the start of the level, which was very unimmersive because I'd had a, such a good kind of run through it. And, uh, there was a guy stood behind a box, um, that the other guys were just shooting the box. So I went around that box and I shot that guy and then I couldn't find another enemy. And I went back into the room and I could hear, and, and one guy, one end, one of the friendlies was running around going, fuck, 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 fuck. And then, and then and I couldn't tell what was upsetting him. And then I realized that one of the corpses on the ground wasn't dead. Like the enemy had been killed, oh, but was like still alive. And so was like lying there staring to space, like awkwardly ragdolled atop the corpse of another enemy. And this other NPC didn't want to shoot him because I think it was a corpse, but the corpse wasn't dead. Um, I had exactly the same thing where a guy yeah. just fell backwards across a box 
and he was just sort of bent in half backwards and yeah he was <laughs> sort of like schrodinger's dead gangster yeah but the fact that he was still alive <laughs> technically according to the game was causing the other guy's combat box to keep triggering so he was just screaming fuck 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 and then i had to like find the one like i had to i had to the the man who was bent over like falling on the ground to you know put him down like old yeller um to stop the other guy from shouting and then that didn't um didn't solve anything so i had to go around and and find the kind of door that the game did want me to step through yeah all the while stuff like that all the while as i was going back through the environment having pop-ups telling me that there were like law usb sticks i could be picking up and just fuckloads of ammo and junk and shit and it's like that moment of like and as we were talking about the start this like why is this also this game why does this game even (laughs) have loot why does this game want me to pick up everything why is this game uh, why does this game want me to shoot these people like it's ah man it was i'm excited to go back to it and learn which of these things i can avoid um yeah it's, it's impossible to tell have you had the thing where like people constantly try to sell you cars over messages not oh, yet God. uh that's coming <laughs> oh yeah endless messages like oh I'll buy this for twenty nine thousand. And it's like i have five thousand you also, also like, can't not it. answer your phone that's right which is yeah. incredibly frustrating because you know this guy keeps on ringing you and i hate this guy i have no interest in doing his messages but you're know, like after four rings he starts talking to you anyway and you're like what the fuck you can't block him can't i block his number or anything <laughs> uh yeah i also had the thing where um uh i was following kind of like you know the uh the, the routes you know how it, you know uh, when you get into a car and you go to a mission mm. and it shows you where you're supposed to go, and it, it sent me like three kilometers out of the city, and then sent me three kilometers back into the city to a place that was about eighty meters from where I was actually originally <laughs> started the journey, <laughs> and uh, that is another thing that is just uh, it's just bugs, it's just bugs, um, yeah. But it's frustrating because it wastes your time and it really spoils the kind of atmosphere of the game. Yeah, one of the one of the problems I've had with it uh, is that my choices over how I wish to play are constantly being undermined by just the the jank. So, I mean, I wanted to play as a stealthy character, um, but maybe four hours, five hours in, uh, the button that allows me to toggle crouch just stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I actually rebound it because it's it was initially on C, which is also the button to skip conversations, which is a problem if you start a conversation crouched because then you have to leave the entire conversation whilst squatting before the character you're talking to, which is slightly embarrassing. And it's easy it's easy just to accidentally because like characters will talk to you, giving you vital exposition during a mission, and if at that you know if at some point you want to crouch, sometimes you can just skip through it and miss it. Um, so I needed to rebind it, so I rebound it. But now uh, it just, it just, I've lost that key. That key no longer exists. <laughs> um, I can crouch, but I can only crouch if I'm holding down the button. And unfortunately, the controls for doing things like hacking and other, uh, and you know, other environmental interactions are sufficiently complicated that I can't really afford to have a finger on that button at the same time. So it makes it very difficult to do anything like hacking while in stealth. Um, so I have a very heavy eraser uh, <laughs> that I have now uh, just positioned on <laughs> on that key uh, in an effort to allow me to do uh, stealth more successfully. But but for a period of the game, I just sort of abandoned stealth entirely and just figured, well, uh, it doesn't really work. The situations don't often allow it 
quite often I'm spotted when I'm I'm standing behind like a container crate uh, from the person who spots me, and that, that feels a little unfair. So I ended up just uh, running at people and shotgunning them in the face, which felt rubbish to be honest. Uh, yeah, um, I've, I've... but but now but now I've got my stealth adaptation eraser in place. Uh, <laughs> it is a little that bit is, more. That is functional. the most cyberpunk thing about this game. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree with you, Marsh, that like stealth is rubbish. Doesn't work. I as much as I tried it. I can take out like one guy, but there's always a camera or something else that can see you. The, the levels just aren't designed for stealth, uh, as far yeah. as I've encountered so far. Um, whereas I think, like uh, again, like Deus Ex, Human Revolution, a lot of those levels are very carefully designed to let you take a stealth route, uh, but I don't feel the same for Cyberpunk. <laughs> Think, uh, yeah, it feels like the levels have been designed brilliantly by artists. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. The the system designers didn't get let into the room until maybe a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. definitely a feeling. Yeah, I think that's the thing about like that scenario I was describing as well. Is like I was genuinely having a great time for as long as the big gunfight was allowed to be something I could choose how much I wanted to participate in it. Like it felt in keeping mm. to just run through it. Right, I was given the objective escape. So encountering a door or a checkpoint that I needed to do sort of artificially gave me things to pass just felt like a huge design error um, rather than being naturally part of the story. Um, but yeah, like the, the, it's not just that the jankiness takes you out, it takes it out of, takes you out of the, the moment. I just think they, you're right that it's just so incoherently kind of implemented. Like, so I find playing it with a keyboard and mouse really doesn't work most of the time. Um, yeah. because you know, you don't have very good control over how fast you're moving and it's a game of like, it's one of the only games ever to kind of reward playing in that kind of very slow pan way that people play that people demo FPS at E3 in trailers, yeah. right? The kind of like, Ooh, pan your head slightly, take it all in. It's one of the only games, and this is to its credit where I've enjoyed walking slowly with a character. Um, but yeah. to do that, you really need to use a pad and it feels, that feels so much better on a pad. Those moments of like, um, you know, or like sort of smoothly moving around the environment while interacting with believable characters, except the fact that playing it with a pad when it turns into the kind of janky RPG shooter that it also is feels yeah. awful. It's one of the, it's got one of the worst like gun pad gun models. I think I've ever encountered for a long time. And I feel like we got as a, as a society, we've learned how to make shooting on a pad feel good. Like that's not like, it's not 1996 anymore. Like, um, you know, this is not, you know, anyone who still says you can't play an FPS on a pad needs new material. Um, but you can't play this one on a pad. It feels fucking terrible, at least on an Xbox 360 controller. Um, and mm. that, that is the sort of thing where with all this investment, it's so evident in other aspects of it. I, I, I'm surprised that that feels as rough as it does. And it's one of the reasons that like, you know, it's, it's gotta be better in six months, right? Like it's gotta be. Yeah, I can see why they made it an open world game because that's where the long tail exists and that's where a lot of the marketing buzz exists. But st structurally, as the, as the game that I've enjoyed, it did not at all need to be open world. It could mm. have just been, you know, car drives mm. between set piece missions like any Deus Ex game. Um, and that would have been a lot more achievable for them, uh, <laughs> I think. Yeah, um, I do like the feeling of just getting lost down the side street in my car those are some of the best moments for me but i agree if that's a trade-off for like mm. whether or not uh yeah t posing well, man floats into space i don't know i lost my car uh <laughs> what? hasn't has never reappeared so uh, <laughs> yeah i guess it's not a car driving game for me <laughs> Same yeah, i guess just 
destroyed in, in a really janky cutscene that makes no sense. And then there's a mission pops up saying, wait for your car to be repaired. And it has never been repaired. <laughs> so Mine just came uh, back. But um, I, uh, my current love is uh, bikes in that game. Always ride bikes. They're just faster and better. Mm. To be honest, I like um, I like the thing when you summon your car where it says this might not work and it might run people over in a kind of in-universe way. And that's <laughs> I think one of the only times um, where it's like acknowledged the fact that they couldn't get the system to work very well. It's in, like an insurance in warning. Yeah. Yeah. So, so after hours trying to work out how to get my car back. Um, I didn't want to steal cars because that's not the character I'm, I'm really playing. Mm. I know she's a criminal, but like she doesn't seem to be just a, a wanton, chaotic criminal who would yank any old civilian out of their car and steal it. Um, so I didn't really want to do that. But in the end, I, uh, you know, I, I saw somebody who looked, looked like a snooty corp boy in his his mega Rolls Royce, and I, I yanked him out and stole it and drove to the next mission marker. And it wouldn't let me drive to the marker for some reason. Uh, it just kept on incrementally slowing down the vehicle what? more and more the closer I got to it. So in the end, I just parked, got out, went to the mission marker, and the mission immediately begins with being driven in the NPC's car straight through the vehicle that I had just, <laughs> just acquired, completely destroying it. Uh, <laughs> yep, game's a bit broken. Yeah, yeah. A bit I had a broken. Moment, I drove, I drove my car to a mission and parked by an NPC, and then I was talking to him. But and it was a empty, completely empty road, middle of the night, and another car had come down the road and stopped because my car was in its way. And so my entire conversation with this particular NPC was interrupted by the other car beeping constantly to try and get around <laughs> my empty car that was parked. Even though it's like a wide open road, there's no one else on the street. You could just drive around me. And also it's like, it's fucking cyberpunk. Like drive <laughs> on the wrong side of the road for 10 seconds. <laughs> anyway, um, and like beep, beep all the way through it. And then as we were walking away from that scene towards the mission thing, I could hear the car move on behind me. And I thought, oh, finally it drove around my car and I turned around and my car had simply gone. <laughs> and, it had yes. been, and it had been able to the other car had been able to move on because my car disapparated into space oh, so. my favorite bug so far has been um being stuck in slow motion uh, but it's a really interesting kind of slow motion where the 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 more directly i look at a person the slower the game gets <laughs> what so it's like inverse super hot where the closer you get to actually acting the slower you become uh, it's it's really weird so it's i had to sort of scuttle towards enemies while looking at the ground and then try and hit them but um so it didn't work. something i found really really entertaining in its many bugs including the best bug that's ever been in a game uh is is that i think i've seen a few people sort of wanted to be things other than it is and i think that's 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 valid in some cases but in others it's like you know, it's ultimately a cyberpunk game, and that means that your options at any given time are going to be calibrated to cyber cool. Whether or not you think that's cool is perfectly reasonable choice to make. But I don't expect to have the option to play like a extremely shy. Um, you know, I don't expect it to ever be Peep Show. Is what I'm saying, right? Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't expect to be able to play Mark from Peep Show in cyberpunk, right? Like, you're approached by some some dudes yeah. in the street, and they're like, "Hey, man, fuck you." And I expect my options to be shoot them or say fuck you back. I don't expect to be like my one of my options to be uh 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 sorry uh uh oh, shit. sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry. Uh, sorry oh god what do I say what do I say what do I say like I don't you know I'm not expecting that because of the genre it occupies. However, 
both that bug of like every time I look directly at someone, time slows down, and the amazing bug where occasionally male characters' penises are just hanging out of their flies are both incredible, <laughs> accidentally having that effect of like, I'm a cool <laughs> cyberpunk entering the bar. Oh, I've just realized that my flies are undone. Shit. Like, that's a donation they didn't intend to add to the game, but uh, you want to talk to the lady, but you have to look at your feet instead. Exactly, you know, yeah. Even get close to her. Yeah, time will slow down, and I'll become completely incapable of moving if I look directly at anyone. <laughs> so I need to look at the floor. I look at the floor, but when I'm looking at the floor, I realise, oh no, my willy is hanging out of my pants. Like, <laughs> like, uh, like uh, oh, God. too too much for real life. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> the. Something that Mike Pondsmith has said in the past is that part of the inspiration for Cyberpunk way back when was a point in the 80s where it became clear that like people at home, technology was kind of being reclaimed by people even as it was being handed down by big corporations. So people were fixing their own computers. They were making their own computers. They were they were you know building things for themselves and reclaiming tech, basically. And in, in his words, the street was kind of claiming tech. And that's a big theme in the setting, as is obvious. And I think in another very meta way, that almost feels like the best hope for Cyberpunk is that it fosters a modding scene that as in the tradition of all the games that's a bit like Bloodlines or New Vegas or something like that, there is some massive fan-made mod in the future that just fixes all this shit, that retunes it to be what it needs to be. But my other worry is that because it's such a, you know, expensive AAA, allegedly behemoth of a thing, that it, people won't have that freedom. And that's, I think, one of the other tensions that, like, I almost don't want to wait for a patch. I kind of wish people could just homebrew whatever solutions they need to turn into the game that it is almost. Yeah. Let Marsh see his balls in the shower. Just just let him. Yeah. It's, it would be a, a vagina in, in my ah. character's case. I was not talking about the game. <laughs> <laughs> Are you suggesting I'm a never nude? <laughs> I mean... I'm always always denim clad underneath <laughs> exactly, whatever yeah. I'm wearing. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> But I can't, that's the point. Um, <laughs> oh, it's definitely a thing. Shall we do uh, some questions, chaps? No. Oh. Denied. Denied, gosh. I've been waiting for you two to be together for ages so that I can I can do the third and final, maybe, part of our game name. Guess the genre by the game name quiz. Yes. Oh, the so it's final the showdown. I'm so into it. Oh, excellent. Game. It's going to have slightly different rules from the previous games in that it will have rules. Um, <laughs> so you're going to you're going to start with 5 points each. 5 points, okay. okay. When when I th- throw you a game name, you're going to buzz in with one of your buzzers. What does your buzzer sound like, Tom? And what does your buzzer sound like, Chris? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> we went back and forth. I couldn't find a funny thing to do. That makes noise. I'm relying on my scream from earlier. My, oh no, my point has landed directly in the middle of nothing. (laughs) Capitalism, I guess. (laughs) Yell. (laughs) So uh, whoever uh, buzzes in inverted commas in first gets to answer. Uh, If they're correct, they gain a point. But if they're wrong, they lose a point. And the question gets thrown over for a free consequentless attempt by their uh, opponent. I'm excited and nervous. Oh, that's game design. That's game design. So you guys ready? Oh, yes. You ready for the first game name? Bring it. Bring it. Throw me in the river. What? <laughs> Throw me in the river. <laughs> ah! Oh, It's over to Chris. 
uh, sliding tile image construction puzzle game. Minus one point. Shit! Um, is it uh, a religious... Uh, sorry. Uh, is it <laughs> a religious walking simulator uh, that kind of walks you through Jesus's walk across the water? That's a really good guess. It's not correct. Ah, it's, a, uh, it's a visual novel about a man experiencing his family relationships through a state of compressed time. Mm. <laughs> Hang on. Did we have correct and incorrect noises? Oh, fuck. Yes, we did. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, right, we'll save it for the next well, one. Indeed. The next one is Hadder. H-A-D-R. Hadder. Oh, God's sake. Tom! Uh, <laughs> um, is it a roguelike set in um, hell? <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> is it... Oh, it's my, I have my free shot now, right? It is, yeah. Is it a twin-stick shooter? <laughs> oh. Hadder is a short atmospheric game uh, where you control a piece of flying cloth. Twat. <laughs> <laughs> Liquid twat. <laughs> that's, that's the name of the next game. How did you know? <laughs> uh, the next game is Dungeons and Cocks. <laughs> Go for it, Tom. Um, is it an anime kind of? Um, oh, what would you call it? Just kind of a chatting simulator thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tom. That's not correct. Chris, would you like an opportunity to answer in this terrible quiz? This is uh, getting us right. This is the is worst one. Worse than losing points. Um, <laughs> but I don't have anything to lose, so I'm going to say, is it a sexy platformer? Correct. Fuck. Whoa. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I don't know that it's that sexy, but it is a platformer, so I'm going to give you a point. It's actually an action platformer styled after Tomb Raider. The plot of the game is dictated... Sorry, is dedicated to the life story of Matthew Delaney, an elderly bon vivant who was forced to leave his country after it, after it had been captured and ravaged by the geese. Accompanied by his loyal friends, the goose merchant, the young pimp, and a conquistador, the bear, he reaches the shores of the new world, but the unknown land does not welcome old Delaney as warmly as he planned. That's the uh, synopsis. What the often fuck the, is like, this? The platformers <laughs> often have a bit too much story, a bit too See, much lore. I said platformer because it's like, well, this doesn't sound like a game that was invested in enormously. And like platform was one of the easiest guesses for like games made in Unity quickly or made out of other kind of, you know, rent an engine, like game maker type things. But I didn't expect. I was just expecting it's a platformer. You can see a boob. No, no, it's it, it, the mm. cocks are chickens in this case. Well, they got me, but I got a point, so I'm all right with it. You got yeah, a point. Currently, the scores are Chris four and Tom three. So, what happens if I run out? Do I die? Like, what? What's uh, I'm, afra- what I'm afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's mathematically possible at this point. Okay, that's good. I'm. I'm, I'm um, so there's only there's only two more. <laughs> You'd be pleased to know. Thank God. <laughs> yep, that's good. Game four. Wanko of marriage. Welcome to the dog's <laughs> tale. <laughs> I'm gonna let Chris go first. Whatever. Uh, it's not a choice you have. <laughs> All right, fine. Ah, Chris. All right. Is it a city management game? Uh, oh God, tell me that isn't close. close. Come on. That much is close. <laughs> well, the sounds of it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with. <laughs> Thank God. Ooh, close. That's interesting. Does that does that get passed on to me? It does now get passed on to you. So it's not city management, but it almost is. 
Um, is it a base tactics puke game? <laughs> I'm afraid it is not uh, that. I, I, I was I was caught up on the on the management side of it uh, rather than the city management side. It's actually a game about trying to open a patisserie while two busty dog women vie to become your wife. I hate games. It's <laughs> <laughs> the worst. It's neck and neck, though. Oh, no. Everything to play for on the last question. Exciting, right. Which is seven bones and seven stones. <laughs> Tom. Uh, is it a hidden object game? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid it's not oh, a I hidden object I heard a few sounds. Game. Yeah, that was obviously wrong. <laughs> is it a JRPG? <laughs> oh, thank God. I'm afraid it's a top-down asymmetric multiplayer game. <laughs> which uh, one person is a, a powerful monster and the others are four villagers attempting to banish it. Actually, it looks quite interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe we'll for a future podcast. So I'm afraid the... Uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> the winner is Chris. Hey! Points ah! For Tom's two. <laughs> However, um, uh, Tom can win ultimately and forever by uh, identifying which of these games is pornographic. Uh, can you read me the, uh, uh, the titles again? Throw Me in the River, mm-hmm. Hadder, Dungeons and Cocks, <laughs> Wanko of Marriage, Welcome to the Dog's <laughs> Tale, and Seven Bones and Seven Stones. Um, contrary to my best instincts, I'm going to go for Seven Bones. <laughs> I'm afraid the, uh, the graphic one was Hadder, the short atmospheric game about the piece of flying cloth. What? No, I was lying. It was it was, it was was Wanko of Marriage, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, was it? Okay. Right. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought... <laughs> the word wanko was a clue. <laughs> <laughs> it features deep love-making scenarios, all displayed in gorgeous event CG, apparently. Event CG? Event CG. I don't know what that means That's just either. a porn shoot, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, whatever. It's all good. Thanks for playing this terrible game. That was an ordeal. That was. That was quite a journey, actually. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, much. Games, games shouldn't have names. That's what we've no. said. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Oh, should we do bit... some questions? Yeah. yeah. Fuck. Jesus, I'm a bit. Why am I? I feel so exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I feel, really I feel physically drained by that experience. Thank you so much for arranging this section. <laughs> uh, so, uh, also, I just I want everyone to get ready for the fucking tonal handbrake turn we're going to have to attempt as we move into this question <laughs> section. Um, so Mickey writes, uh, hello, crab and crab, long time listener, first time questioner, big smiley face. I was happy to hear you talking about race in WoW and race slash colonialism in Tomb Raider. I've been bringing up some of these issues with Spelunky 2. It's a colonialist power fantasy and it's questionable depiction of indigenous people. I guess my question is, do you feel like these problems of representation become more or less insidious depending on a game's fidelity or realism? You might argue that games are meant for kids in terms of what they look like. It might be even more affecting to unsuspecting psyches. Relatedly, do you, what do you say to people when they say something like it's just a game? Anyway, love the pod. Uh, been listening for years. Another smiley face, and then a heart, Mickey. Oh, oh that's, that's nice. nice. Yeah, and this is, I think, an interesting, interesting subject. I think maybe something that we um sort of bounced around again a little bit in, in talking about cyberpunk's use of you know tropey use of real you know cultures. Um, I think for me, I'm not a, maybe make two put two and find a point on it but i think actually the fidelity question is interesting however i think maybe approaching a point where we're simply talking about like the responsible and critical use of um tropes and and, and cultural signifiers in anything that 
that is any any a part of pop culture. I think, you know, particularly as it pertains to, I haven't actually played Splunky Two, so I feel a bit um uh not quite able to to comment. Not to anticipate a future question, um, but um, what I would say is that from the first game, at least, it's also clear that a little bit like Indiana Jones or something like that, it's taking its um, tropes very much from matinee adventure fiction um, rather than from the real world, and it, uh, is therefore maybe making uncritical use of of presentations of indigenous people and so on. Um, rather than, and obviously intent only carries so much importance here, but rather than seeking to offer a kind of a new and negative perspective. I don't think that fixes it, but I think it speaks to the issue being one of like, what aspects of pop culture do you feel are fair game for kind of use in your own creation? Um, and hopefully people are becoming more critical about that. Yeah, I think like further to our discussion about like cyberpagalia and about appropriation and the representation of different cultures, um, the thing I always come back down to is just having people from those cultures actually writing that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, actually in senior editorial positions where they could actually control and, you know, bring that understanding rather than a beardy cis white dude like me <laughs> or someone uh, coming yeah. in, you know what I mean? Like uh, to, to actually kind of like crash into that culture um, when I don't necessarily understand all the nuance. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's obviously a thing we need to, we obviously are mindful of as we discuss this stuff. And it's actually relevant to another question we received, which I'll loop into this as we move on from the subject completely. Sure. That Mickey raises, but maybe it's a counterpoint or relevant. Uh, Rodolfo writes, hi CNC, uh, while listening to Chris complain about WoW's racist narrative in the Trolls Island quest, I couldn't help but feel that WoW didn't do Black Panther such a disservice. Um, I believe that Black Panther is quite racist and insensitive in the first place, and that Blizzard just took all of that baggage when it lifted Marvel's story into WoW. Uh, he goes on to point out that uh, there's a plot point in Black Panther to do with the CIA officer kind of uh, striding in as the, the as a, as a savior figure, and while in the real world, obviously, the CIA's involvement in Africa is uh, enormously questionable. He goes on to say, sorry if I sound a tad aggressive, love your work, just wanted to point out something that felt out of place, best regards to Rodolfo. I kind of wanted to reply to that just to say that like, I completely accept that point and that um, Black Panther particularly is a kind of big piece of mass media is certainly not perfect. I didn't want to say that it was, but I think Tom, the point Tom's just made is super relevant here. The point that I was hoping to make about WoW and the thing I raised about wanting to be wrong about this is that... Um, uh, you know, Black Panther was a work of, of cinema that um, had a black creative team and was, you know, uh, some diligence was done in terms of um, consultation and, and foregrounding the right voices there that I didn't feel present in WoW. Um, that's not to say that the choices that they subsequently get made are above criticism, um, far from it, but that there's a, there's a fairly profound, to me, difference in who is doing the storytelling. Um and I think that's really relevant to the issue that, that Tom's raising about um, responsible use of <clears throat> both responsible use of those platforms afforded by creative leadership and also responsible dispensation of those platforms to to people who, you know, who belong on them. Um, yeah. Um, and as to the question, like, what do you say to people when they say it's just a game? I think that is the height of uncritical consumption of media, basically. Yep. You can't really say this is a game, therefore don't criticize it. And also it's just a game, so don't criticize it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any other this thoughts is, on this? Uh, it's my um, main frustration with uh, mainstream media coverage of video games is that they're still all seen like, you know, 2D Donkey Kong from 30 yeah. years ago. But they're not 
they're like deeply political pieces of work uh, which have loads of nuance and loads of kind of like identity written into them um, and that they deserve to be approached as proper cultural artifacts which they are and have been for decades um, and so yes uh, yeah that makes me quite annoyed <laughs> to be honest our next question um, comes from David friend of pod who writes, hello chaps, these days it seems like every successful game has many competitors, both of the premium and free-to-play varieties. This is particularly true of recent phenomena such as Battle Royale and Auto Battlers, but here and there there are occasional games that stand alone in their categories. Civ was one such example for a long time, although it will get its first direct competitor in Humankind next year. One that really stands out to me is The Sims, which is a massive audience, has a massive audience and a lot of creative space still to explore. Why do you think some games go unchallenged, and which do you think are ripe for a competitive reimagining? Cheers, David. I think it's a really interesting point about The Sims specifically. Like, I think yeah, there's probably been some competition for the grand strategy space that Civ occupies, even if the literal theme of Civ hasn't been replicated. Absolutely, um, so Ampl- Amplitude have moved into that space, and uh, yeah, people. but The Sims, as you say, Chris, is particularly ripe for exploration. It's interesting that question of why it's gone unchallenged because I think we know you can make the argument that it's it's sort of defined its own genre, right? Like, it's sort of people. You know, and it has this audience that only plays The Sims because it offers something that other games don't. But I'm not convinced that that is not a flag that that's something people want and would like to see more different kinds of, right? I think we've um, when we've actually talked about The Sims before, I, I wonder if like um, our ideas about what The Sims could be as a concept is not marketable, and by which I mean um, The Sims presents a very very kind of positive view of a particular type of american consumerism mm. and uh, i don't hate that that's fine that's cool but um what i would want from an alternative to the sims is an alternative view of that that actually reflects poverty and you know districts in different ways and not be mm. kind of such a power fantasy uh, but again that's not marketable is it like you don't want to play a game <laughs> where you can't afford anything and uh yeah right be- i think that's interesting because i think the sims what's interesting about the sims so like i, I would say that the sims exists it doesn't exist in the same genre as it, but it answers some of the same needs in people's lives as something like Animal Crossing, right? Like I want to live yeah, in a little town, and I want I like little life simulators. And there are more if you expand the scope that way. There is more competition in a way um, for that kind of collecting things, decorating, um, creating your own space. That this broadens it out a little bit. I agree with you that no one's really like the only games like Heart Life really move in the other direction towards right. taking the sims and turning it into a life simulator with all of all the other things that entails but i also think that like the thing the sims did was like find this point between fidelity where it feels like real people in a real city or town doing real things and cartoonish um sort of let's not look under the floorboards kind of um approachability that I think feels like a, is compelling to a lot of people in terms of feeling like a simulation of life, but with none of its problems, which is, you mm. know, a uh, friend. Like, I think, I think um, Animal Crossing achieves the same thing without raising quite so many questions because it's animal people and a raccoon who yeah, owns it's you. All, mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, it's all abstracted, right. Yeah. But also like, it also doesn't really allow those characters, those characters can't die or get into like serious distress or, you know, for a prolonged period of time or something like that. They can't lose their jobs or have a divorce, which they can do in The Sims. So it's, it's interesting what behaviors people do and don't want. That all that having been said, I don't know why there's not more competition for Sims. The Sims is a specific place in the middle of all that. I really don't actually. Yeah, especially because like the 
um, talking from like a sort of business perspective, their model where they just like produce like 20 expansions before the next Sims game is actually, yeah, seems really like lucrative and very good. It's, it reminds me of Football Manager, where it's like a lot of people who don't consider themselves of game as gamers play this one game, and that's I kind wonder, of, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wonder, they probably are competitors for it, but they may be in markets that we're not as tuned into. I think there's, mm, there's mobile, a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of mobile games that eat not uh, that don't necessarily completely emulate The Sims, but sort of eat away at the corners of that experience. Things like Star Dolls and things like that, that give up something of the kind of dress up uh, experience. And um, there are games based, you know, on on experiencing life as a as a pop idol and things of that kind, where you are doing some sort of low level management through an idealized version of uh, a person's life and there are games where you're trying to just open a bakery or whatever or marry a dog i don't like you know <laughs> exactly. i think something i was just thinking as well is like particularly when we're talking about the kind of the relatively small kind of mainstream industry i wonder if there's not a lot of expertise about how to make those games or comfort making those games either from a production standpoint or a design standpoint floating around to say that people can't turn their hand to different things. Mm. But like, it feels like everyone who knows how to make the Sims works at Maxis um, in that particular way. And it, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be too simplistic about that. I appreciate that companies can pick up new genres and kind of make, make them their own. But in terms of like, I feel like what companies jump onto and what trends they try and follow, which is really what we're talking about is often based on kind of, what's to hand and what's and what's an easy thing to adapt so you know to, to return to a discussion point from much earlier in this podcast i think one of you know we talked about ea's various millstones one of the ways they manifest is you know taking existing ip or games and sort of hoisting this extra requirement that they follow some other trend onto them um but those trends were always at least somewhat aligned with the things that studios were already making so bioware mm. who were making sprawling rpgs are now also tasked with making um uh, an open world game or or um the battlefront series which is already a kind of multiplayer game is tasked with becoming more of a service multiplayer game with loot boxes i feel like jump i mean obviously the irony there is ea has the sims already in their in their docket but i think the leap for someone like ubisoft maybe to jump on that bandwagon is a little bit further because they don't have an existing thing to plug it into um and that that's maybe the also the reason because i was trying to think of other genres that this fits and i think it's one that's very relevant is that like it's clear from the success of cyberpunk that there is an enormous appetite for serious, you know, high production values, immersive single player games, right? Like sure. a massive, a massive appetite for that. And absolutely, you know, people, you know, Skyrim is one of the most successful games ever. Cyberpunk is now one of the most successful games ever at launch, at least like people want these games. So why isn't there a new one every year? Because they're absolutely, and, and I think the answer is because they're really hard and expensive to make and not a lot of companies are comfortable making them. And that's true even when you're talking about really big players. So, yeah, I think I think that's what ends up maybe causing these genres to go unchallenged, like the kind of baked-in inertia of companies sticking to what they know. That's definitely that's definitely definitely true. But I'm amazed that Paradox doesn't have a Civ like... I mean, they, mm. they might well do, but they're like... Uh, Given what they've done with SimCity, they just absolutely scooped SimCity. Um, yeah, with with a much better version of the game and that actually catered to what people who enjoy that genre wanted. And they're in absolutely the right place to do this for, uh, um, you know, a Civ or any of that kind of like genre piece. Mm. 
I'd love to see what Paradox's version of The Sims plays out like. <laughs> Me too. Crusader yeah. Kings. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Our final question comes from Ben, who writes, Dear Create Modes and Pro Views. All right, maybe I've been playing too much Valhalla. In episode 350, Chris said, Some of the questions are about very specific games, which would be best answered when very specific people are here, because otherwise it's you're getting takes from people who haven't played the games, which is not what you want. But that is what I want, writes Ben. What is your favorite take about a game you haven't played? Hmm, this just seems like an, an invitation to be real bad at the thing we are trying to do. But <laughs> I'll take it. Um, <laughs> I mean, the reason that we wouldn't have played a game is because we've dim- dismissed it outright, right? So this is basically your most negative and uninformed opinions, <laughs> which are, I, I, I mean, I have plenty of them, but I don't necessarily want to air them in public. Okay. Uh, oh, here's one. Here's one. I think, I think that I wouldn't like Hades because I don't like roguelikes where your meta progression is really the thing that gates... Um, dictates your overall progress through the game that's a good answer there you mm. go i haven't that's played it answer. but i've just written it off and i suspect it's going to be a lot of people's game of the year so yeah now you can at me but i won't notice because i don't look at them <laughs> <laughs> i found a setting in twitter that means i don't get to see anyone's replies it's great <laughs> uh, uh nope <laughs> i guess there are no more takes I guess that's it. I guess we've taken ourselves all the way out. It's only, it's half past three on a Sunday afternoon. I'm, I'm struggling. <laughs> I have no idea why I'm so tired. I'm fucking done. <laughs> what the hell is going on? Because it's half past three in a Sunday afternoon, 2020. But in some ways, it is isn't it always midnight in 2077? The answer is no. no. Um, <laughs> right, well, that's it then, isn't it? Uh, if you would like to... <laughs> If you'd like to send us a question for next year at this point, um, because I suspect our last podcast this year will be a roundup of our takes on the year without uh, uh, the questions section, please do email us at questions at crowbar.com or tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. Yeah, you may find this a podcast and others like it on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. You can find the Crate and Crowbar community on Discord, a link for which is on our website at creatingcrowbar.com and thank you as ever to all of our patreon backers who enable uh this uh exchange of uh, honks you can find out more about this exchange and participate it yourself i guess if you want patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar um uh i have been and remain chris thurston I've been Marsh Davis. I'm Tom Senior, and I'm at Mr. Tom Senior on the Twits. Oh, I'm going to have to update your bio on the site. Way. Nice. I'm going to have to edit every podcast that we put out. Nah, fuck that. I don't care. Don't at me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Shall we stop this and go about our lives? Let's do it. Indeed. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody. Yeah.